Welcome to Ivy Voices. I am your host, Robert Kelty, and joining me in this episode is Rebecca Austin Picard, a former career-related program coordinator, IB Educator Network workshop leader, and author of the textbook CP Reflective Project. Our conversation is the first in a series of episodes focused entirely on the CP and intended to support schools as they implement the program. Rebecca and I will be discussing some of the challenges that students and supervisors encounter in completing the Reflective Project, and we will highlight some potential strategies to proactively mitigate some of these challenges while maximizing the potential of this culminating experience for students. If you are new to the CP, the Reflective Project is one of the four core components of the career-related program. It is an in-depth exploration of an ethical dilemma related to students' career interests. Produced over an extended period of time, it's designed to draw together key elements of the student CP experience, including their career-related study, diploma program courses, and other components of the CP core. As schools, educators, students, and parents are all adapting to new ways of learning and teaching during and after the COVID-19 pandemic, I hope this conversation will showcase ideas and practices that might inspire and support the entire CP community. Becky, I've read your book and I found it deeply insightful and helpful in terms of understanding and navigating the Reflective Project. What about your experience with the Reflective Project prompted you to write a book on this topic? I was driven to write this from, well, it was a mixture of circumstances. I left uh, my school a few years ago to go back to university and I wanted to explore the Reflective Project in more detail because I had this suspicion that it had real world significance. So I set myself the challenge of interviewing people from all sorts of professions just to gauge an idea of where it stood. When I saw the criteria of knowledge and understanding, critical thinking and engagement and reflection, I was thinking, well, surely these are needed in real world situations. And I'd left my school with a history of telling students that they have transferable skills. So I wondered actually what the transferable skills were. So I I set about to talk to as many different professions as possible. I set myself the challenge of 40 and I think I made it to 25. And then I presented on my findings at the global conference in Vienna in 2018 and publisher from Hodder was there. And we went from there. She said, I think you should write a book that helps students through the Reflective Project. And even not just for students, I found the book helpful for teachers and anyone who wanted to find an organizational process of how to have meaningful reflection translate to real inquiry based around career studies and ethical dilemmas of career studies. That being said, what would you say is the greatest value of the Reflective Project overall? I think the greatest value of the Reflective Project is that it is a unique assessment in critical ethical and reflective thinking. From an IB perspective, it's this wholly constructivist exercise where students shape their understanding of the world. But this being said, it is very, very hard. If done really well, it is this extraordinary exercise where all these 
types of thinking merge into students recognize the value in multiple perspectives and commonalities in behavior attitudes and thinking across the global community that's really why I wanted to write the book is because by presenting it to students and putting yourself in their shoes and what they find difficult then that's fantastic for teachers all the time to be thinking what does my student need how do they see this what are they finding tricky the most important thing I think the most important value of the reflective project is my realization and the more I work on it is that it is a process not a product and with no criticism at all as I have been one of these teachers you can get bogged down in getting the product out of the student making sure that they deliver what they need to deliver without actually taking time to enjoy the journey along the way and the more you see the reflective project as a process I like to call it a road trip, really, you know, with lots of stops along the way. The more you can do that, the more the students will get out of it uh, skills that they can really use in the future. The Reflective Project is an exciting opportunity for students to really synthesize their career-related program experience. And we know it can sometimes present challenges, though, as well. Have you noticed any common challenges among students in the Reflective Project? Yes, I think the same issues come up again and again for the Reflective Project, similar to the extended essay, really, in that it's the question and getting the right question, making sure the question has a clear ethical dilemma in there, making sure the question doesn't mean that you're studying something far too broad, too narrow. But more importantly, it's the willingness to keep going back to the question that's the important thing. I think sometimes students think that once they've set their question and they're on the way that they can't change it or respond to it. And I think that shows real risk taking is when they're actually able to go back to it and say, actually, no, I need to shape this a little bit more. My research is telling me that I need to go back to this question and I need to refine it. But from there, often the question can cause problems because it's really recognising what an ethical dilemma is. A good friend of mine who teaches philosophy always says, if you want to find the dilemma, then look for the clash. And every question, every reflective project question should have a clash or a conflict really clear in there and should be a question that shows that there isn't an obvious solution to the problem. Otherwise, it's not a dilemma. And I think that's one of the things that really separates this program from other programs. It's really teaching students how to solve the problems they want to solve. And looking for that ethical clash really pushes students to a new level of critical thinking that I think a lot of programs don't inherently offer. But that being said, we're also in this uniquely historical time in terms of COVID-19 and the hard and pivot to digitize learning. Have you noticed any common challenges, particularly related to the school's transition to online or blended learning? I would say that the challenges are the lack of face-to-face, the lack of ability to, you know, those small comments that you make with your supervisor in passing, you know, the little chats that can happen spontaneously in school. I think that sort of human aspect is missing from this. And I think that we all recognise that. And I, I take great joy, actually, in the fact that we all miss face-to-face as much as we do. Because I think if we started saying it didn't matter, then we would be in real problems. Mm-hmm. However, I think teachers across the world have risen admirably 
to responding to this. And I think now they're trying to find out more human ways, more tools that can really help students connect and collaborate with them and with each other to really help this process. And I think there's a subtlety in your points around the power of the supervisor and particularly in facilitating these conversations with students. And so knowing the importance of that role in this type of journey, what can supervisors specifically do that can help students stay on track throughout the process of developing their reflective project, whether virtually or face-to-face? The supervisor role, I have been championing the supervisor role for a long time now because I don't really think supervisors really realise just how much they can do and how exciting their sessions can be with their students. The supervisor's main role is to be the witness to this young person's process. They are observing their journey on this reflective project process. They are there as an observer and they are there as an inquirer. The greatest quality a supervisor can have is to be a good questioner and to really master the art of the open question. I recommend the Socratic method, but a supervisor can have a really proactive role to get the student to take charge of their project and to ask well, I suppose they'll ask annoying questions, really, to really question everything they do and to get to know the student and what they want to do. A misconception about the supervisor role as well is that they have to be an expert in the subject that the student is taking. Well, if that was the case, I don't think I would have supervised any of the reflective projects that I supervised. So it actually helps for the supervisor to not be an expert at all and be willing to put themselves as the learner in the hands of the student who's going to be telling them all about this and going to be guiding them and teaching them about this topic that they're busy finding out about. I remember a few years ago, I think it was at the same conference I presented at, A speaker was talking about how if you try to define learning, the process of learning is defined by wanting to find out more, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting because actually that's what we want the supervisor to do. They want to be taught by their student and we want them to be encouraging so the student keeps on going and going and, you know, just help them steer them a little bit. Make sure they don't go completely off course or actually you know ask that question when you you know if they're going off course or if they're going down a dead end but ask the question about how they respond to that if they do meet a dead end you're there to celebrate a dead end so I think the supervisor role can be really exciting and I've met so many people who are making it a really lovely role and also allow yourself as a teacher to be the teacher that you are every supervisor is different but, you know, I've, I've seen supervisory sessions where they're discussing what they're doing and they're making their thinking visible. Students can often sort of groan at the thought of doing a literature review, which does sound very dry, I have to say sometimes. Mm-hmm. But then if you change the dynamic of it, I, I often use for the literature review, you know, like a quadrant. And I place all my sources with a student on a post-it. And you use that quadrant to talk about, you can place like reliability, unreliability, objectivity, subjectivity on the axes. And you you start placing them on a wall, maybe, and start looking at the sources they've used and how reliable they are. And then they visibly can see where 
the holes are in their knowledge or where they need more things. My point being is that you can take these things from the guide, you can take these things off the page and make them really dynamic and visible. And all the time the student is in charge, which is the exciting bit. And that is exactly what we're aiming for in this field. So understanding that we've had to make this very hard pivot to a more digitized experience, have you noticed any advantages or innovations or enhancements that have resulted from this transition to a more online or blended learning experience? I've been talking about visible thinking, and I think when you do online and blended learning, then you absolutely have to use visible thinking tools. So in a way it's helped it in like that. When you have a class working in PPS lesson on skills for the reflective project and they're all contributing to slides in synchronous learning or they're all contributing to a Padlet or they're all contributing to a mind map together or maybe they're debating something on an online tool like Flipgrid, you know, these are dynamic tools without any of the distractions that you can get in class. I am being very optimistic as I said that because I know we all miss the distractions from class, but it's very interesting that the online environment and the also being at the time that we are with all this amazing technology at hand, that it actually makes for far more opportunity for visible thinking. And that's really interesting through the lens of really using experiences in the real workforce with the visible thinking tools. and how we use these tools to communicate our thinking, our research, our interconnectedness with our work. The ATL skills of social and communication are so crucial here. I think teachers are often bogged down in how they're meeting you know, the ATL. But when you, you have a class and you are getting them to collaborate online and work on a you know, debate, uh, an ethical dilemma within a lesson and you're using all these tools, they're implicitly using these skills so beautifully. Maybe the difference is, is that the teacher is really risk-taking and using these tools. And maybe this has forced us to use these tools that we maybe we put off using before, or maybe we're a bit hesitant about. Maybe we've been all placed in a position where we have to use it. I've noticed when you get the right collaborative tool online, it can be fantastic. I mean, I used a concept board of some sort of mind mapping tool the other day with a student who had specific learning needs, and I saw him fly with it. It was I just happened to find the right tool at the right time that could really help him, and that was only because we were doing online learning. And so really seeing the Reflection Project as this powerful experience, not only for the student, but also for the teacher in terms of this journey of learning how to learn and learning how to communicate our ideas and our passions and the problems we want to solve. What would you say is the most important piece of advice teachers and supervisors can give to students regarding the reflective project? I think the real question is, is how do we get students using ethical frameworks to understand the reflective project. When you approach it from that angle, students find it a lot more accessible and they've got this framework to hang their ideas on. And it also gives them the opportunity to find their own voice a lot more, which is what you actually really want them to have. Go highly in the reflective project, you need to have an independent voice. But let's put that aside. We want them to have their own voice anyway with this. Now, the reason why I mention this grasp on ethics is because it allows them 
to see dilemmas from multiple perspectives. The criteria says that they should be looking at two or more perspectives. And all too often, students are looking at for and against. And we want to avoid that because that's not how, well, it can be how the world works, but it's what we don't want them to see. We want them to see that dilemmas are often nuanced without an obvious solution. And you have to work hard with sensitivity and intercultural understanding to actually get to solutions. Everything in the reflective project gives the student the skills to navigate their career path because it teaches them that not following a straight trajectory is fine, not having just the end goal in sight is fine. It's about enjoying the ups and downs along the way and responding to them in a sensitive way and that their voice really does matter but it also matters that it is an informed voice and that they have used their research and they have used their skills to come as a critical thinker to come to that conclusion. Rebecca, in terms of strategies for teachers and students in critical thinking and responsible action, any thoughts there? Well, yes, because I think when you start this process, you think you have to start everything from scratch. The easiest way to get students to be critical thinkers is for them to realize that they are already critical thinkers. Because when students realize that all the skills they have been using so far in the sixth form course, and, and actually if they've already done IB with the NYP, they will have utilized this. When they look back on those skills, they realize that they are already critical thinkers. If you ask them, when have you collaborated and communicated with others to find complex solutions? When have you asked interesting questions? When have you responded in an open-minded way? When have you looked at assumptions, implications and consequences of different ways of thinking? And if they map that across their CP course from their IB subjects to their career-related subjects and also their real world maybe their interests outside school. When they look at that, saying to them, you are already this person, you are already a critical thinker, but we're going to use this skill explicitly because we all know that students only recognise the tools that they have where they use them explicitly and they're shown how to use them. So we have these fantastic students and they have the skills already there. We've just got to highlight it for them. Um, and I think that's so important. So in, in terms of students communicating their findings, there are different mediums and ways in which they can do this. They have the first option, which is a standard essay that has certain requirements, but there's also a second option that allows for some creative expression. With your experience, can you speak to the second option so our listeners have a picture of what that can look like? So I find that for some reason, students still perceive that option one, writing the essay, is easier than the option two. It is an interesting dynamic when you consider that. One of the things I've noticed recently, uh, a school I work with this year, they were just starting the CP and they were absolutely certain that their students were all going to do option two. And I said, well, how can you be so sure? And it wasn't just because of their career related subject was very much media based, but it was also for the fact that their PPS course had embedded the entire way through ways of responding that were all option two 
formats. And I thought that was such a clever idea is that you familiarise students along the way by asking them to respond in dynamic ways. And actually you're doing them a favour because podcasts and presentations and blogging and blogging and all these things are ways that they need to hone their abilities in these areas. So this school had embedded all these skills throughout their PPS course and they were never going to ask their students to respond in what they said in a traditional way. And so they said that they'll give their students the confidence when it came to option two, or option one is to really think, well, of course, I'm going to be making a film. Of course, I'm going to be making a film or a podcast with a supporting document. And I thought, thought that was really refreshing. And of course, the main challenge that students come across is this idea that the two formats have to complement each other. And they can find that hard. But really just going back to asking, well, what do I want this form to do? What would be the best thing it could do? And then the additional format, well, what's the best thing about this mode? You know, oh, it's video, or that means that it's, it's very visual. So what do I want to say about my project that's really visual here? I have to say that the IB provided additional guidance on the questions to ask to make sure that you're using the right additional format. And I found those really helpful, actually. So in terms of thinking about the role of the supervisor and the very critical juncture of research in the reflective project, and this is the learning cycle of learning how to learn, any suggestions and or advice for supervisors as they guide their students through the act of research? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I think this is the area where momentum can go off a bit for students. They get dispirited when they find that there's an area that they're really interested in, but they can't find what they want. I've been trying to not simplify the research process, but scaffold it a bit more and encouraging students to put a timer on, like give them half an hour and say, right, in half an hour, I want you to find 10 possible sources just start off with using a search engine and then amassing that and then teach them just from reading whatever it is they've got in front of them, just the beginnings and ends of those pieces, whatever they might be, whether they're academic articles or whether they're news articles, and just to read the beginnings and ends and put them into a yes, maybe, no pile. And then when they've got five that they're relatively happy with, that's when you can start looking at them in a little bit more close detail and then using more and more critical thinking tools to get into you know what that piece is all about so you know you that's where you use the tool about recognizing whether it's bias when they've rated that as an important source then it can move to the pile of right i'm going to use that in more detail we're going to look at that and then they can go back and repeat the process but if you take it in just sort of bite-sized chunks where they're looking, 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 revisiting the question at the end of the process. Does that affect my question? Is that affecting my direction? Am I finding more things as a counter argument? You know, I think if you can keep the research process as a system that they can keep going through and build, build, build to a really decent bibliography, I think they would find it a lot more accessible. And as someone that's guided many students through this process, do you have an example of when a student may have been unable to vet a resource and it was not a sound piece of evidence or research and they were trying to, to use that in their reflective project? And if so, how did you guide students through the process of evaluation? 
Well, I think when you start at the very beginning with them recognising what different sources are, so working from, they start with tertiary, go to secondary and then primary and have a really decent amount of time, this could be done in PPS lessons, of where they recognise the strengths and weaknesses of each of those three. So rather than telling students not to use a certain website beginning with W, you can actually say, well, actually, it's a really good tertiary resource because if you look at their bibliography that might give you clues as to where to go from there. So getting them to start out by recognising the strengths and weaknesses of tertiary, secondary and primary sources and how to use those and set them up to be able to find really interesting sources and then giving them a structure that and going through the model it in class with everyone where they look at a, a couple of resources together and they work through a system that shows them how trustworthy that source is yeah if it's an article has it been peer-reviewed if it's an academic article has it been peer-reviewed and the more you model this to start with in class with your students and then maybe get them to present in small groups where they do it themselves and with that being said i just have to say that i can tell you are a phenomenal educator and i really appreciate your work reflective project skills for success. Rebecca Austin Picard, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Visit our website, www.ibo.org for more stories and information about the CP. Be sure to check more episodes of IB Voices on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next time for more insights from our IB community.